Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio, episode number 159, The Truth About Christian Nationalism. My name is Gans, our co-host Basil is not here, but as of this recording, we are nearing the end of his journey, his battle with his health. For the last month, he has been in the hospital, at home, recovering for the last couple weeks. He had appendicitis, had his appendix removed, he went into sepsis. He had some post-operation complications, basically had a tube out of his belly for about a month. He finally got that thing out, and now he's recovering and should be back very soon. So, hallelujah to that. Thank you for all the people who have been praying for him and praying for the show, frankly. And all the encouragement over this last month has been incredible, so thank you very much. And a special thank you to those who are producers of the show, either with your time, talent, or treasure. As you know, we operate on value for value, which means we provide value and you decide how much value you think we should have back in the form of time, talent, and treasure. There are many different ways to support the show. One way is with a monthly subscription to the supply drop. And all it is, is you saying, hey, I want to support you guys consistently. $33.33 per month to stick it to those Freemasons. And as a thank you... We will be shipping you a box of supplies, Canary Cry branded material, every quarter. And for the next three quarters, we have Age of Deceit 1, 2, and 3 in succession, printed DVD copies in the supply drop. So if you've wanted to have a hard copy of Age of Deceit over the years, this is one way to get your hands on it. Support independent media. We're doing it on our own. No corporatism, no communism, no cartelism, just the canary in the coal mine pointing to the way, the truth, and the life. And in similar fashion, you can join the T-Shirt Council where you hop in $19.84 a month to trigger George Orwell. And you can join the T-Shirt Council where you can cast a vote on what design gets printed on a T-Shirt that you will receive every quarter as a thank you from us to you. We don't sell products. This isn't any kind of exclusive membership. It is merely a way to support the show and for us to say thank you for supporting the show. All right, so let's jump into it today. We're going to talk about Christian nationalism. It's a hot button issue. There's a lot of people who want to talk about it, who want to take up the label. There are many who oppose it, obviously, but it really is a nuanced conversation. So let's dive right into it. Christian nationalism and the emerging threat, the under talked about and the under appreciated threat of white Christian nationalism in this country. The country is going more secular, which mm-hmm. almost at the exact same time, those that are religious are almost becoming more fundamentalists. Right. But we have to have folks in the Republican Party speak out as well. Otherwise, we're going to have Christian nationalists infiltrating our schools and indoctrinating our children. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. We need to be the party of nationalism. And I'm a Christian and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. Depending on who you are and what your worldview is, the phrase Christian nationalism will ring different ways. For some people listening, it might make you think, oh, those white supremacists, 
and radical right-wing extremists who are violent and a threat to democracy and the United States. Other people might say, oh, that's me. I'm a Christian. I'm American and I uphold American values. And I've been told that America was founded on Christian values. And so, yes, I'm a Christian nationalist. And those are just generalizations and two examples. We know that there is a nuanced conversation here that it would be impossible for me to cover entirely in one podcast episode. But after putting this thing together, there are a few takeaways that I'd like to list up front so you can see the general takeaways before we dive into the meat of the content. Number one, Christian nationalism is a nuanced conversation that can only happen with clearly defined terms. Again, the phrase means something to certain people and means something different to other people. And when those two people try to have a conversation about this, it's never going to be fruitful or productive because they define these things completely differently. Number two, Christian nationalism seems to be a psychological operation that creates both defender and enemy of the state. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Christian nationalism seems to be a psychological operation that creates both defender and enemy of the state. So defender of the state, as in, hey, uphold the Constitution, America founded on Christian principles, and an enemy of the state, as in white supremacist, terrorist, all those things. And it does so simultaneously. It's a very interesting phenomenon, quite the divide and conquer tactic. Number three. Christian nationalism will be used to profile anyone, mostly Christians, who believe in biblically-based eschatology as terrorists and extremists who are threats to democracy. As much as one group paints this radical white supremacy right-wing group as dangerous and violent and militant, truly it's this idea that some kind of powerful institutional authority like the DOJ, determining all these Christian citizens as Christian nationalists and therefore terrorists and extremists that need to go on some kind of list or some kind of watch just because they have certain end times beliefs is just as egregious of a violation of any kind of rights or freedoms that we are supposedly supposed to uphold in this country. So in that way, it's a very dangerous topic because as soon as you have any points of agreement with the phrase, even distilled down to its basic definitions, the government can label you as a threat. Thanks, Obama. Number four, Christian nationalism will be treated as a mental health disorder and become perfect candidates for the rise of psychedelic and virtually enhanced therapies. This is one thing unique to Canary Cry Radio and Canary Cry News Talk and Face Like the Sun people, which is that we're always looking at the technological impact on something like this. And when we look at Christian nationalism as this threat and all this kind of stuff, it's very easy to see a connection with, oh, these are mental health issues, especially with some of these violent actors that have done things recently, like the guy who drove a van into the fence of the White House. Driver now in custody after crashing a U-Haul truck into a barrier just one block from the White House last night. A law enforcement official telling NBC News the driver was also making threats to the White House. 
Investigators also seized a Nazi flag from the scene. We do know that he uh, is from the Midwest, from Missouri. He's only 19 years old. Uh, whether or not he had any specific connection to any white supremacist groups or neo-Nazi organizations, that's something we have not been able to determine as of yet. Uh, this suspect, again, identified as Sai Varshith Kandula, 19 years old, charged with threatening to kill, kidnap, or harm a president, assault with a dangerous weapon, destruction of federal property, and other charges. He is expected to appear in court uh, a little bit later today. They found inside the truck, we can tell you, uh, a flag with what appeared to be a swastika on it, a black backpack, and a roll of duct tape. Saying that he wants to take over the government. He drove all the way from Missouri to do it. They called him a neo-Nazi because he had a Nazi flag allegedly in his truck that he was in. But he is of Indian descent. So it doesn't make much sense, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to make sense because the greater point here written in mainstream articles is that they were looking at the mental health of this individual who have these Nazi fascist beliefs, who believes he himself needs to kill the president and take over and act on that, which validates the terrorist slash extremists domestically, especially that we were talking about in the last point. So how the government defines what Christian nationalism is, tie it into how the scientific establishment will determine it as some kind of mental health issue, leads to therapies that involve a lot of magnetic waves to the brain, VR, psychedelic immersion, things of that nature, which for all intents and purposes is the brainwashing mechanism that was born from the MKUltra experiments. So as you can see, Christian nationalism has the cultural touching points out there in the mainstream, in the greater culture, in academia as this nebulous threat that exists. But when you dig in, it has all the tenets of a psychological operation that comes from on high and government and intelligence levels and the desired outcomes for a majority of Americans who identify as Christians is not good. There are several documents and articles that I want to touch on to look at this topic and digest it a little bit more in the context of the points that I mentioned at the top here. So one of the documents I always bring up in the context of a militant religious group is the Project Megiddo Files, which was an FBI strategic assessment of the potential for domestic terrorism in the United States undertaken in anticipation of or response to the arrival of the new millennium. I was a young spry teenager during Y2K, but I remember all the talks of apocalyptic consequence, airplanes falling from the sky, your toaster is going to explode and your refrigerator is going to melt because some computer code was not properly done. But I didn't hear much at the time anyway, I was 17 years old in high school, of what the FBI was up to in profiling or paying attention to certain groups that may be a domestic terrorism threat as part of the new millennium. Which is ironic because it's clear that the intelligence agencies have become the biggest public domestic threat, in my personal opinion. The document is divided up into nine sections an executive summary, an introduction, and then a section on Christian identity, white supremacy, militias, black Hebrew Israelites, apocalyptic cults, the significance of Jerusalem, and then a conclusion. I want to zoom in on 
Number three here, Christian identity. Here's what it says. Christian identity is an ideology which asserts that the white Aryan race is God's chosen race and that whites comprise the ten lost tribes of Israel. There is no single document that expresses this belief system. Adherents refer to the Bible to justify their racist ideals. Interpreting the book of Genesis, Christian identity followers assert that Adam was preceded by other lesser races identified as, quote, the beasts of the field, Genesis 1.25. Eve was seduced by the snake, Satan, and gave birth to two seed lines, Cain, the direct descendant of Satan, and Eve and Abel, who was of good Aryan stock through Adam. Cain then became the progenitor of the Jews and his subsequent mating with the non-Adamic races. Christian identity adherents believe the Jews are predisposed to carry on a conspiracy against the Adamic seed line and today have achieved almost complete control of the earth. This is referred to as the two seed line doctrine, which provides Christian identity followers with a biblical justification for hatred. It's interesting that nearly 25 years later, headlines from places like Rolling Stone have this, the Christian nationalist machine turning hate into law, and places like the Southern Poverty Law Center having a whole hate watch monitoring and exposing activities of the American radical right, where they have articles like Dangerous Devotion, Congressional Hearing Examines Threat of White Christian Nationalism. Getting back to the FBI document, It says here, Christian identity also believes in the inevitability of the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. It is believed that these events are part of a cleansing process that is needed before Christ's kingdom can be established on earth. During this time, Jews and their allies will attempt to destroy the white race using any means available. The result will be a violent and bloody struggle, a war in effect between God's forces, the white race, and the forces of evil, the Jews and non-whites. Significantly, many adherents believe that this will be tied into the coming of the new millennium. And it goes on, the view of what Armageddon will be varies among Christian identity believers. Some contend there will be a race war in which millions will die. Others believe that the United Nations, backed by Jewish representatives of the Antichrist, will take over the country and promote a new world order. One Christian identity interpretation is that white Christians have been chosen to watch for signs of the impending war in order to warn others. They are to then physically struggle with the forces of evil against sin and other violation of God's law, i.e. race mixing and internationalism. Many will perish and some of God's chosen will be forced to wear the mark of the beast, to participate in business and commerce. After the final battle is ended and God's kingdom is established on earth, only then will the Aryan people be recognized as the one and true Israel. Christian identity adherents believe that God will use his chosen race as his weapons to battle the forces of evil. Christian identity followers believe they are among those chosen by God to wage this battle during Armageddon and that they will be the last line of defense for the white race and Christian America. To prepare for these events, they engage in survivalist and paramilitary training 
storing foodstuffs and supplies, and cacheing weapons and ammunition. They often reside on compounds located in remote areas. Again, this is interesting. Profiling a mere prepper back in the late 1990s, right before the new millennium, and tying it to this violent group of Christian identity people who believe in some kind of weird, twisted interpretation of the book of Revelation related to race, which seems like something that the intelligence agencies would come up with just as much as somebody receiving quote-unquote visions in their basement and creating a new interpretation of the end times scriptures. But seeing the parallels here from this document over 20 years ago to the sentiment now of what Christian nationalism is in terms of a threat is very interesting. I continue on here in the document. As the millennium approaches, various right-wing groups pose a threat to American society. The radical right encompasses a vast number and variety of groups, such as survivalists, militias, the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, Christian identity churches, the AN, and skinheads. These groups are not mutually exclusive, and within the subculture, individuals easily migrate from one group to another. This intermixing of organizations makes it difficult to discern a singular religious ideology or belief system that encompasses the right wing. Nevertheless, Christian identity is the most unifying theology for a number of those diverse groups, and one widely adhered to by white supremacists. It is a belief system that provides its members with a religious basis for racism and an ideology that condones violence against non-Aryans. This doctrine allows believers to fuse religion with hate, conspiracy theories, and apocalyptic fear of the future. Christian identity-inspired millennialism has a distinctly racist tinge in the belief that Armageddon will be a race war of Aryans against Jews and non-whites. The potential difficulty society may face due to the Y2K computer glitch is considered by a number of Christian identity adherents to be the perfect event upon which to instigate a race war. And it goes on. So again, this document from 25 years ago is outlining a cyber pandemic and the rise of Christian identity. This radical group of militant right-wing Christians, usually white, that believe in some twisted eschatology that's all race-related. It sounds like that's the plan as America falls apart. Now, the document has a whole other section on white supremacy and militias. Of course, black Hebrew Israelites, which is a whole other rabbit trail that we won't go down now. And apocalyptic cults. And this is where I think the words here matter, where the beliefs that are being laid out of the apocalyptic cults have certain things that many people listening might identify with. Here's what it says, quote, for apocalyptic cults, especially biblically based ones, the millennium is viewed as the time that will signal a major transformation for the world. Many apocalyptic cults share the belief that the battle against Satan, as prophesied in the book of Revelation, will begin in the years surrounding the millennium, and that the federal government is an arm of Satan. 
Therefore, the millennium will bring about a battle between cult members, religious martyrs, and the government. In the broadest meanings, cults are composed of individuals who demonstrate great devotion to a person, idea, object, or movement. However, using that definition, many domestic terrorist groups could be characterized as cults, including Christian identity churches, black Hebrew Israelites, and some militias. For law enforcement purposes, a narrower interpretation of groups that qualify as cults is needed. A more useful definition of cults incorporates the term cultic relationships to describe the interactions within a cult. Specifically, a cultic relationship refers to, quote, one in which a person intentionally induces others to become totally or nearly totally dependent on him or her for almost all major life decisions and inculcates in these followers a belief that he or she has some special talent, gift, or knowledge. This definition of cults provides important distinctions that are vital for analyzing a cult's predilection towards violence. And then later here, apocalyptic cults see their mission in two general ways. They either want to accelerate the end time or take action to ensure that they survive the millennium. For example, Om Shinrikyo wanted to take action to hasten the end of the world, while compounds in general are built to survive the end time safely. An analysis of millennial cults by the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit describes how rhetoric changes depending on whether the leader's ideology envisions the group as playing an active role in the coming apocalypse or a passive survivalist role. And then they have a block quote here, a cult that predicts that God will punish or evil will be punished indicates a more passive and less threatening posture than the cult that predicts that God's chosen people will punish. As another example, the members of a passive group might predict that God or another being will one day liberate their souls from their bodies or come to carry them away. The followers of a more action-oriented group would, in contrast, predict that they themselves will one day shed their mortal bodies or transport themselves to another place. End quote. Oh, like the transhumanists? Hmm. So... It's pretty clear that transhumanists who believe that they're going to be able to upload their mind and their soul, quote unquote, into a machine, they're a cult then. All right, that's good. The FBI basically calling transhumanists cults. A cult that displays these characteristics may then produce three social psychological components referred to as the lethal triad that predispose a cult towards violence aimed at its members or its outsiders. Cults in which members are heavily dependent on the leader for all decision-making almost always physically and psychologically isolate their members from outsiders, the first component of the triad. The other two components interact in the following way, quote, isolation causes a reduction of critical thinking on the part of group members who become entrenched in the belief proposed by the group leadership. As a result, group membership relinquish all responsibility for group decision-making to their leader and blame the cause of all group grievances on some outside entity or force, a process known as projection. Finally, isolation and projection combine to produce pathological anger, the final component of the triad. And then they ramble on about cults here, and then they get to this, cults with an apocalyptic agenda, particularly those that appear ready to initiate rather than anticipate violent confrontation to bring about Armageddon or fulfill prophecy, present unique challenges to law enforcement officials. One example of this type of group is the Concerned Christians, CC. Uh-oh. Canary Cry, CC. 
Monty Kim Miller, the CC leader, claims to be one of the two witnesses or prophets described in the book of Revelation who will die on the streets of Jerusalem prior to the second coming of Christ. To attain that result, members of the CC traveled to Israel in 1998 in the belief that Miller will be killed in a violent confrontation in the streets of Jerusalem in December 1999. CC members believe that Miller's death will set off an apocalyptic end to the millennium, at which time all of Miller's followers will be sent to heaven. Miller has convinced his followers that America is Babylon the Great, referred to in the book of Revelation. An interpretation that I disagree with. In early October 1998, CC members suddenly vanished from the U.S., an apparent response to one of Miller's prophecies that Denver would be destroyed on October 10, 1998. In January 1999, 14 members of the group who had moved to Jerusalem were deported by the Israeli government on the grounds that they were preparing to hasten the fulfillment of Miller's prophecies by instigating violence. Ascertaining the intentions of such cults is a daunting endeavor, particularly since the agenda or plan of a cult is often at the whim of its leader. Law enforcement personnel should become well acquainted with the previously mentioned indicators of potential cult violence in order to separate the violent from the non-violent. And there you have it, profiling those who would have end times apocalyptic beliefs and instructing the FBI or its readers here how to determine if they are of the cult or not, or have violent tendencies or not, which makes me think that many of us have already been profiled by these individuals and looked at to see if we are a threat or not. Very interesting. So the alleged threat of Christian nationalism was laid out in documents like the Project Megiddo files from the FBI over two decades ago. So now when we look at articles like this from the New York Times, an opinion piece, what Christian nationalism has done to my state and my faith is a sin where it was racism and xenophobia and Donald Trump and Republicans and that caused this Christian nationalism thing to rise and it's horrible and it's affected me and my community and my faith and it's a sin and it's horrible. Now it ought to be noted that there is no complaint about hatred or violence or anything like that in this particular article. It's more on ideological grounds and really more of a complaint about how Christianity being politicized this time around what the author here identifies as Christian nationalism is scary only because it's going to affect policy and how laws are implemented. Newsweek had the headline, Conservative Issues Dire Warning About Impact of Christian Nationalism, which goes to show that there's other agendas here because this isn't really an actual true threat in the sense that there are so many people who identify as Christian nationalists and are suddenly mobilizing and preparing in a militant way. Of course, there are pockets of that, but in general, conservatives and the general public appear to be against Christian nationalism, but not for the reasons that maybe we've laid out on a show like this, more so the reasons that are aligned with what the FBI wrote out as the threat. Racism, xenophobia, extremism, hatred etc. Raw Story had the headline, Wyoming Republican Party member lashes out at Christian nationalists infesting her state and church. And let me read you how they outline what Christian nationalism is and why it's a threat. According to Susan Stubson, a professed conservative 
whose family goes back six generations in Wyoming. She has seen firsthand the ugly racism and violent rhetoric of the Christian nationalists that is moving to the forefront of the conservative movement. In her column, she wrote about an encounter with one local freely using a racist slur when he met with her husband in 2016, with Stubson writing, quote, I now understand the ugliness I heard was part of a current of Christian nationalism fomenting beneath the surface. It had been there all the time, end quote. And it continues, it was also an expression of solidarity with a candidate like Donald Trump, who gave a name to a perceived enemy. People who do not look like us or share our beliefs. Immigrants are taking our guns. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. You're not safe in your home. Religious freedom is on the gallows. Vote for me. She wrote before adding, quote, the message worked and in large part, it's my faith community, white, rural and conservative that got them there. End quote. Now, notice how all these mainstream articles, whether they're quoting conservatives or talking to liberals, has a common thread of very shallow analysis and very shallow accusatory language when it comes to the problems with Christian nationalism. It's more propaganda than it is substance, which is expected for the mainstream media. But I just want to show that they're not going to tell you or talk to you about the deeper implications, both historically and as part of the psychological operation. So we know the mainstream media, whether you're coming from the left or the right, are all on board. The Christian nationalism is a threat and it's a problem and it's racism and it's extremism and it's all the things that are destroying this country. And what's interesting is that, as I mentioned at the beginning, this open media propaganda assault on this nebulous group of Christian nationalists, which is reported as being a threat to democracy, a threat to Western civilization and America as we know it and everything else creates a cultural vacuum where nobody wants to identify with this marginalized and nebulous group, Christian nationalism, which in my opinion, by design, allows for certain individuals to step forward and embrace the title. Andrew Torba of Gab is one of those people. He wrote a book called Christian Nationalism, a biblical guide to taking dominion and discipling nations. And I want to read for you the declaration written by Shane Schatzel at the beginning of this book, because these are the words coming directly from a group that identifies as Christian nationalists. So it's important to see how they define themselves in comparison to how the FBI defined such a group and how the mainstream media defines as such a group. So again, as I was mentioning earlier, it creates the enemy of the state, according to the mainstream media and progressives and academics, but it also creates the defender of the state. If you identify as a Christian nationalist here in this way, you are a defender of the state. So here's what their declaration states. Christian nationalists are Christians before anything else. We profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and his apostles. One cannot be a Christian nationalist unless one is first a Christian, but it is possible for non-Christians to be friendly and sympathetic toward the Christian nationalist movement. Christianity is not limited to any race, ethnicity, or culture. 1 Corinthians 12.13, Galatians 3.27-29 Therefore, Christian nationalism 
cannot be limited to any race, ethnicity, or culture. As Christians, following in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, our primary goal is to always preach the gospel of Jesus Christ first. Matthew 28, 19-20 Now, so far, I think many of us can agree that, yes, we ought to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. That should be our goal. So, not too much of a deviation from most Christians so far. Let's continue. Then, after we have attained enough Christians in our nation, we are obliged to peacefully order our state governments in such a way as to help Christianity grow and flourish in our states without restrictions. This is an obedience to our Lord and His command. The purpose of government from a Christian perspective is to preserve and protect the Christian understanding of civilization, otherwise known as Christendom. Proverbs 8.15, Daniel 2.21, Daniel 4.17, Romans 12.21, Romans 13.1 and 2. As opposed to such things as the Marxist understanding of civilization or the Islamic understanding. Daniel 2.21 is the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it says he changes the times and seasons, he removes kings and establishes them, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel 4.17 is where it says, This decision is the decree of the watchers, the verdict declared by the holy ones, so that the living will know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes, setting over it with the loneliest of men. It's very interesting that they are using a passage talking about the watchers, the decree of the watchers, as their argument that the purpose for government from a Christian perspective is to preserve and protect the Christian understanding of civilization otherwise known as Christendom. And maybe this is where interpretation is important, because the first three examples here are all Old Testament passages, and any reference to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is in reference to a heavenly kingdom. So while there is authority to be pointed out in terms of what kingdom we actually belong to, I don't know that those passages justify the idea that the biblical Christian understanding of civilization is what the government is supposed to do. Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sure. Again, not sure how it relates to understanding the purpose of government is to preserve and protect the Christian understanding of civilization. I guess, in principle, that's something that these Christian nationalists believe as something to protect at the government level. Which, in general, I suppose I agree with, but let's do the last one here. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is from God. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Consequently, Whoever resists authority is opposing what God has set in place, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Which is again another passage that has been 
used to justify voting for people or supporting certain government policies in general, not just to defend a Christian perspective or understanding of civilization. And that's not to say that it's a bad argument against a Marxist understanding of civilization or an Islamic understanding of civilization, but it is the unfortunate consequence of creating the pressures in society that is hostile towards Christians in general, culturally, to fuel a movement like this. Christendom has always supported secularity, but not secularism. Secularity is understood as a functional separation between church and state, government, and religion. However, the separation is not absolute. Under secularity, religion can still play a large role in government, and government is not used to quash religion's role in society. That is not to be misunderstood as to say the church and the state are one and the same. Such a theocratic concept was not supported by our Lord, John 18.36. Christians are integralists, not theocrats, in that we have always favored two separate institutions, one for religion, the church, and one for government, the state. The first institution, the church, is a voluntary association. The second institution, the state, is a mandatory association in that all must obey its laws. While the institutions are separate, the church may still influence the state under secularity. So it really just gets into the nuance of what they believe when it comes to the separation of church and state. They are defenders of it, which goes against a common mainstream argument against Christian nationalism, which is, hey, how are you guys defenders of the constitution and defenders of America, if you want the end of the separation of church and state, isn't that what the country was founded on? And the Christian nationalists here are answering that, saying, yes, we would like to uphold a separation of church and state, but uh, that does not mean that one cannot influence the other. And of course, uh, in this case, they're arguing that the institution of the church has a responsibility, a moral responsibility, perhaps, to inform or influence the state. But the question is, what happens when the opposite takes place, when the state influences the religious institutions, which it has for quite a long time? The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. Let me skip ahead to another part here where it says, as Christian nationalists, we understand these United States of America were once a union of Protestant Christian states. This is revealed in the original intent of the First Amendment Bill of Rights that prohibited the establishment of a federal religion so as to respect the establishment of state religions, which already existed before during and after these United States were founded as a union. The United States were founded as a Christian nation. It was only the federal government that was founded as a secular entity, so as not to infringe upon the established religion of these Christian states. I am pretty certain that there wasn't an actual union of Protestant Christian states as some kind of official title. There is a Protestant Union, also known as the Evangelical Union, Union of Auhausen, or German Union, or the Protestant Action Party, which is the Protestant group in Germany from the 1600s. 
That's not to say that they didn't declare Christianity as some sort of state religion at the time, as it was part of their culture, but it's interesting to be picking up on all the nuances of this Christian nationalist declaration. It goes on, American Christianity no longer looks like it once did at the founding of our Christian nation, but it is still nevertheless a nation of Christian people. Now, just to pause right there, that's a really important point that makes Christian nationalism its own thing, which is that it is a belief that America was founded as a Christian nation with Christian values, and so therefore we should defend the Christian nation. But my argument has always been it wasn't founded exactly as a Christian nation. It was founded as a secular nation, the new Atlantis. It was more of a practice in the occult and trying to manifest the great hope. But nevertheless, I would agree that we are a nation of Christians and perhaps have always been a nation of Christians since the beginning. But it doesn't mean we are a Christian nation. But I digress. Back to the document. American Christianity no longer looks like it once did at the founding of our Christian nation, but it is still nevertheless a nation of Christian people. Therefore, a modern Christian nationalist movement must be more generalized and ecumenical in nature. No longer do Christian nationalists in America seek to establish official state churches or religions, but rather we seek to reestablish states that recognize Jesus Christ as king and general Christian faith as the foundation of state government and state laws that reflect, in every way possible and reasonable, Christian morality and charity. Christian nationalism is more than a political movement. It is also a social and economic movement. It is not enough to simply boycott businesses that oppose our values. As Christian nationalists, we pledge to support the businesses of other Christians, strengthening our community and helping each other prosper. Not everyone likes Christians or what we represent, and this is nothing new. Christians have dealt with discrimination and persecution since our Lord ascended into heaven, and we will continue to deal with it until he returns from on high. So, pause right there for a little bit. Let me break down some of this here. So, interesting how they're trying to generalize it and really make it about governance. And how it impacts not just politics, but society and even economics. And this is where you start to see the parallel. The circle is complete when you compare, dare I say it, wokeness and the progressive left and how they have been pretty fascist in their likes and dislikes of culture and who gets canceled and all this kind of stuff. This is the same thing coming from the right side of the aisle. I'm going to read this little mini paragraph here again, but switch out Christian nationalism with LGBTQ and see how it reads, okay? LGBTQ is more than a political movement. It is also a social and economic movement. It is not enough to simply boycott businesses that oppose our values. As LGBTQ plus SW. KKKK, we pledge to support the businesses of other LGBTQ plus KKK, strengthening our community and helping each other prosper. Not everyone likes LGBTQ plus KWRP or what we represent, and this is nothing new. LGBTRQWXY and Z have dealt with discrimination and persecution since our Lord ascended into heaven, and we will continue to deal with it until he returns on high. 
Again, notice, just as a thought exercise here, the Declaration of Christian Nationalism written in Andrew Torba's book outlines a cancel culture that precedes woke cancel culture. Actually, this is the beginning of cancel culture with the Baptist and evangelical movement boycotting businesses and things of that nature stuff that's happening again right now, but it seems like a lot more controlled opposition, meticulous engineering going on today. In recent times, we had the Dylan Mulvaney issue with Budweiser, but it really, that whole thing seems like an operation to both short the market when it comes to Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch stock, make a killing off of that, as well as push, obviously, ideas that they want pushed into culture and spur up the anti-woke agenda, the anti-woke crowd, the awakening going on, which many will be herded into Christian nationalist. If you're a, a Christian, maybe even a Catholic or even a liberal Christian, if you are starting to question the agenda of the trans movement in America, then you must be a Christian nationalist ready for violent uprising. That's how this is going. So if you talk about divide and conquer, right-left paradigm, you have woke and anti-woke, which is right now Christian nationalism. Let me finish out the declaration here. As Christians in the U.S., we are blessed with the freedom to start our own alternative business and associations when faced with discrimination and persecution from others. No Christian should be trapped into a position of having to do business with those who hate us and our movement. There's that hate again. Talk about calling evil good and good evil. A complete 180 between the two different sides of the woke anti-woke or woke Christian nationalism. This is why we shall innovate in business and commerce, making new associations wherever needed. This is also why we pledge to support those new innovations with our prayers and patronage whenever possible. Christian nationalism is a spiritual, political, and cultural movement comprised of Christians who are working to build a Christian society grounded in a biblical worldview. This book is a guide for Christians to take dominion and disciple their families, churches, and all nations for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King, Matthew 28, 19. So notice how incredibly subtle it is, where there are many agreeable parts to the greater mission of Andrew Torba's definition or declaration as a Christian nationalist, but there are details in there that seem to take the bait when it comes to the PSYOP. I'm reminded of Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. That's what it feels like. A little bit of leaven in there and it just ruins the whole thing. But comparing how Andrew Torba describes his mission with his declaration in his book and comparing it to how the Anti-Defamation League talks about Andrew Torba, you can see the divide and conquer taking place. This is an article straight from the ADL. Andrew Torba, five things to know. Number one, Torba is the founder and CEO of Gab, a social media platform and haven for hate. And disinformation. Oh, he has his own platform for hate. And it says here, because the platform lacks policies around content moderation, Gab quickly became known as a platform used by conspiracy theorists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, members of militias, and influential figures among the alt-right. Number two, Torba regularly promotes anti-Semitism, right-wing extremist ideologies, and conspiracy theories across various platforms, including Gab. And it has quotes of 
Torba allegedly mentioning Zionist bootlickers who can destroy the GOP party. Apparently not a fan of the Zionist party, which if you really look into it, who is? And it's not anti-Semitic to think that. But, you know, hey, if you say anything against uh, anything Israel, you're anti-Semitic, apparently. Number three, Torba has long promoted the concept of Christian nationalism, encouraging his followers to help build an independent Christian, quote unquote, economy. And yes, this was another thing where Torba wanted to create a parallel Christian economy, something that I think in the grander picture is being hijacked by Elon Musk and the Everything app, the X app, leaning into conservatism and wanting to create not exactly a Christian economy, obviously, but one that caters to conservatives and right-wing folk. That revolution is taking place right now, and I fear that in the long term, it will contribute to the Mark of the Beast system. But that's a whole nother rabbit trail. Number four, Torba has allied himself with extremists and far-right influencers. Oh no, he was seen with Nick Fuentes, who many believe is part of the PSYOP here, the Mockingbird-style operatives. Oh, and of course, he was on with Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon is the bastion of all things uh, supremacy extremist. So there's that. And number five, over the last two years, Torba has worked to insert Gab himself and Christian nationalism into mainstream society and politics, primarily through relationships with elected officials and candidates. Oh, no, this is where the rubber meets the road. He's affecting politics, which means this is a an issue to be addressed because he's doing it. He's actually trying to take over government with his Christianity, which one could argue that's part of American politics is people with all kinds of ideologies, worldviews can run. So I don't know what the problem is there, but hey, Anti-Defamation League says this guy's dangerous. And then there's this article from the New Yorker back in March of 2023. How Christian is Christian nationalism. We won't read the whole article, but here are some highlights. The events of January 6th bolstered a growing belief that the alliance between Trump and his Christian supporters had become something more like a movement, a pro-Trump uprising with the distinctive ideology. This ideology is sometimes called Christian nationalism, a description that often functions as a diagnosis. On a recent episode of Revcovery, a podcast about leaving Christian ministry, Justin Gentry, one of the hosts, suggested that the belief system was somewhat obscure even to its own adherents. Quote, I think that spitballing 70% of Christian nationalists don't know that they're Christian nationalists, he said. Quote, they're just like, this is normal Christianity from the time of Jesus. Oh, boy. New Yorker just butchering themselves here, quoting from some random podcast, uh, a, a spitballing quote about how most Christians don't even know that they're Christian nationalists. Again, playing right into the psyop that they would like to do that. They would like to have every Christian identified as Christian nationalist. Continue with the article. In contemporary America, though, the practice of Christianity is starting to seem abnormal. Measures of religious observance in America have shown a steep decrease over the past quarter century. In 1999, the same year as the Megiddo Project papers from the FBI, Gallup found that 70% of Americans belonged to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. 
In 2020, the number was 47% for the first time, and nearly 100 years of polling, worshippers were the minority. This changing environment helps explain the militance that is one of the defining features of Christian nationalism. It is a minority movement espousing a claim that might not have seemed terribly controversial a few decades ago, that America is, and should remain, a Christian nation. There is no canonical manifesto of Christian nationalism, except maybe that Andrew Torba declaration, and no single definition of it. In search of rigor, a pair of sociologists, Andrew L. Whitehead and Samuel L. Perry, examined data from various surveys and tracked the replies to six propositions. And it gets into it here. It's We don't have to do it because... It's really just showing the Trumpism is in certain issues like immigration, and they they are the the you know uh, identifying things that are also part of this radical group of religious people that are going militant. And I want to point out again this idea that they're trying to collectively get all Christians to identify as Christian nationalists, and therefore you know all Christians as being terrorists or a threat to democracy, quote unquote. Here's what it says in the article. There are, of course, plenty of non-white Christians in America and even non-white Christian nationalists. Parentheses in the earlier book, Whitehead and Perry reported that black Americans were, in fact, more likely than any other racial group to support Christian nationalism. End of parentheses. But Gorski and Perry argue that in American politics, Christian nationalism has often served as a white identity movement. And there it is. White identity movement. Remember the Megiddo project files? It was Christian identity. So it's mixing it all together here into one big thing. Back to the quote here. They note, for instance, that white Americans who support Christian nationalism are likelier to evince disapproval of immigration and concern about anti-white discrimination. And they worry that, quote, white Christian nationalism is working just beneath the surface of American politics, ready to trigger an outburst as it did on January 6th. Quote, there will be another eruption and soon they write. So again, they're really stoking this idea that it's not just white people, it's all people. Even the black community tends to be more susceptible to Christian nationalism. <laughs> and, and it's really quite ridiculous, but it really shows what they want out of this movement. Gorski and Perry warn that a second Trump administration might lead to Jim Crow 2.0 with, quote, non-white undocumented immigrants singled out for, quote, mass deportations on an unprecedented scale. But they also note that the white Christian nationalists in their survey expressed the most hostility not toward immigrants or toward Muslims, but towards socialists. In this, the Christian nationalists are firm within the historical mainstream of American conservatism. That may also be true even of those respondents who wish to, quote, institutionalize Christian identity and values in the public square, end quote, given all the ways in which America remains distinctively and sometimes officially Christian. Parentheses, the federal government shuts down on Christmas, for instance, yada, yada, yada. So... The main point here being that 
according to the surveys that Gorski and Perry, these sociologists, looked at, Christian nationalists didn't have much of a problem with immigrants or Muslims. It was really against socialists, which you can connect to communists, which you can connect to something that I think I will jump to now, which is a book titled Volume 1, Two Masters and Two Gospels, written by Mike Bennett, Dr. Future, where he has a whole segment outlining how Christianity was weaponized in the post-World War II era in the 20th century leading to the Cold War, which ironically is a lot of the Christianity, culturally speaking, that Torba and pro-Christian nationalists tend to refer to. But I want to read a segment out of the book Two Masters and Two Gospels to give you an idea how Christian nationalism is not anything new. So in a chapter titled James Fifield Jr. and the little-known history of American clergy riding the beast of government, big business, and Wall Street, Dr. Future talks about a man named Jonathan Herzog. He's a PhD from Stanford in American history, not a big Stanford fan around here, and career experience in the Foreign Service and conservative Hoover Institute think tank. He wrote a book called The Spiritual Industrial Complex. We've talked about it before. And he outlines programs that were initiated by President Truman and maintained by Eisenhower, whose goal was to, quote unquote, invent a sacred Christian origin and agenda about America's founding to ennoble American citizens into a religious holy war against communism as the only way it was felt by them to secure the full measure of sacrificial devotion from its citizens to counter what they were told would be an existential battle fought in man-to-man combat fashion over the fate of civilization, which was all the things that came into the Cold War. And it says here, Herzog also notes that in 1946, efforts of sacralization began in Congress to add God onto currency, a national motto, and in the Pledge of Allegiance. When Eisenhower was inaugurated, he continued the initiative, even debuting something called God's Float, in the inaugural parade, which featured sacred symbols and paintings of houses of worship around its perimeter, such as a church and a synagogue and even a mosque, as he was also famous for saying that for democracy to work, it had to be based upon religion and, quote, he didn't care what it was, end quote. Herzog notes that Eisenhower soon deployed the U.S. Information Agency, a war propaganda department designed to be used for psychological warfare against enemy nations to dishearten and control hearts and minds, to develop a blueprint for spiritual mobilization, getting assistance from the American Legion, who not long before in 1933 had been part of a plot to overthrow and then install a fascist government in America known as the Business Plot. The Boy Scouts, the Advertising Council, recently known before then as the War Advertising Council run by Madison Avenue firms to support Wall Street and war dual objectives and others. They released a report 15 months later titled One Nation Under God, which states that there was, quote, the need to weld religion and democracy and called for, quote, public comparisons between the Bible and America's most revered national documents. End quote. President Eisenhower, raised as a Jehovah's Witness, declared in 1953 that, quote, recognition of a supreme being 
is the first and most basic expression of Americanism, end quote. His advisors felt that to sell the message, he should join a church, and he was subject to the first baptism of a sitting president in history at the National Presbyterian Church. Soon thereafter, Congress began printing In God We Trust on stamps and canceled letters and took the Pledge of Allegiance written by the socialist Baptist Francis Bellamy, who gave sermons such as Jesus is a Socialist, with his endorsed form of an extended arm salute to the flag that resembled the Nazi salute and added under God to it in 1954, although a number of Christian denominations opposed it with debate of it discouraged in Congress as being a sign of disloyalty. Congress then authorized the printing of 681,000 copies for the public as the all-time largest government-funded effort of religious indoctrination. A congressional prayer room was then built in 1955 with a Bible on the altar and a stained-glass picture of Washington kneeling in prayer, portraying him as a religious saint. So very interesting history there, because in the same way that we're seeing progressivism playing a role in the forcing of the LGBTQ or trans agenda onto everybody, irregardless of whether they want it or not, feeling like it's a violation of certain rights of other people. Same exact thing took place in the 50s, but it was Christianity that was institutionalized into government or at least public education and really this whole operation to indoctrinate a generation not to get them saved. This is an important point. They did all this not because they want everybody to know God and to know Jesus Christ and be saved. It was to create a generation of militant people, complicit people who will defend the nation, who will are willing to die for the nation's cause or the elite's cause for the nation. And it's very much not about the eternal state of the soul. Let me get back to the book here. The national motto was changed to In God We Trust in 1956, with the House report saying it was of, quote, psychological value. Then they decided to make a push within the military to produce religiously grounded soldiers to counter the messianic nature of communism. Truman had decided to enact a one-year mandatory universal military training, UMT program, for all high school graduates in 1947 as an ideal laboratory to force these new beliefs onto captive recruits with one million or more handled annually. He began a pilot program connected to this in 1947 at Fort Knox, Kentucky, where military leaders could engineer a generation of patriotic, virtuous, cold warriors, a mujahideen, holy warrior, for their purposes. This special project was assigned to Brig General John Devine, who fought under Patton, to, quote, morally and spiritually engineer the U.S. Army and to, quote, create a perfect soldier who could ground lethal capability in a religious framework, end quote. And I think it's important to note that even at the time all this was rolling out, there were teachers, professors, labor unions, and many religious leaders who opposed these programs, saying that it was un-American and a form of indoctrination. So just like there's an opposition today with certain things being pushed through, even from within, for example, you can find people who are part of the trans community or the LGBTQ community who are outspoken about, hey, uh, this movement is overstepping their boundaries. This is not what we represent and things of that nature. A couple more 
parts here from the book regarding the use of psychological warfare on civilians by the government with the use of religion in 1951 truman set up the psychological strategy board psb comprising the cia departments of state and defense and others and studied quote the potential role of religion in psychological warfare end quote their first report stated that, quote, the potentialities of religion as an instrument for combating communism are universally tremendous. Religion is an established force which calls forth men's strongest emotions. Our overall objective is seeking the use of religion as a Cold War instrumentality should be the furtherance of world spiritual health, end quote. Herzog adds that, quote, the PSB was influenced by the earlier United States Information and Education Exchange, USIE, an overt psychological program authorized by Congress in 1948 to cultivate a favorable image of the U.S. worldwide, which had established a three-person council of religious leaders to investigate the, quote, moral and religious factors of psychological warfare. The report recommended that public leaders emphasize the historic and continuing influence of religion on American society, the spiritual roots of U.S. institutions, and the religious component of major holidays. End quote. So there's a clear history of intelligence operations using religion to fabricate a generation that becomes radicalized for the cause. And it seems like they're doing that again, and they're doing it both ways. Again, they're doing so with the woke agenda. We know that nearly 25% of people who identify as trans served in the military. So there's something there. There's some kind of military activity in connection to the trans community right now, which ties into trans Maoism, which is a whole different conversation, but it makes sense as to why that's taking place if you look at what kind of worldview and ideologies the military wants in order to create enhanced super soldiers you're not going to get that from christians who believe that we are made in god's image and we don't need genetic enhancements or technological enhancements to become a more superior warrior at least your general christian is not going to believe that in fact they might believe that that's part of the mark of the beast in the end times but in any case that makes sense that the military is recruiting those who would be susceptible to those types of changes and effects onto your biology, but you can still use the same tactics of governance to create and mobilize a militia type of situation, which has been their goal the whole time. And with Torba and Gab, and again, I'm not saying that they are not Christians or bad Christians. I'm simply pointing out that they seem to be playing into the divide and conquer tactics by taking the bait, declaring themselves Christian nationalists, providing literature that doesn't have the best biblical exegesis to justify certain parts of their declarations and sort of represent or become a place that garners an actual mobilization of people, especially those who might be preppers and things of that nature in normal circumstances they're just being smart people preparing and doing all this stuff. But now in the context of the information and psychological warfare going on, 
anybody who is a prepper, anybody who lives remote and is prepared for some kind of catastrophe or cyber pandemic or whatever it might be, you must be a Christian nationalist and therefore a terrorist and therefore you are a threat. So I hope you're getting a balanced view or a sort of cohesive view about how culture is picking up on Christian nationalism, both pro and against, but also looking at it from neutral documents like the FBI document, the Megiddo files, and also two masters, two gospels written by Dr. Future that clearly outlines the history of psychological operations to militarize a generation of Christians to defend the state specifically against communism, which I think there are many parallels to today. And so I think where this is headed is categorizing anybody who has any kind of association or affiliation with what falls under the umbrella of Christian nationalism, whether you're white, you're black, or it doesn't matter what race you are. Apparently Uh, all of that matters is you have some kind of end times beliefs. Uh, You might have some beliefs about the elite, or you might be a conspiracy theorist or something like that. Basically everyone who listens to this show (laughs) might be categorized by these people at the top as a Christian nationalist, where this is all leading to is labeling Christian nationalism as a mental health crisis. Now, you might be thinking that sounds crazy, but there is some evidence to suggest this to be the case. This is Sage Journals. There's an article here. It's a scientific journal titled, Do Beliefs in Christian Nationalism Predict Mental Health Problems? The Role of Religious Non-Involvement. Let me read the abstract for you. It says this, an area that has received little attention in the stress process model of mental health is belief systems and values. A belief system that has been the focus of considerable recent research attention is Christian nationalism, an ideology that advocates a fusion of American civic life with a particular type of Christian identity and culture. Using nationality representative data from the United States 2017 Bayer Religion Survey, the author examines the extent to which Christian nationalist ideology represented a unique and independent influence on two mental health outcomes, depression and anxiety. The results suggest that stronger beliefs in Christian nationalism were associated with higher depression and anxiety. But the link between Christian nationalism and depression was significantly stronger for those with lower individual religiosity. The author discusses the implications of our findings and offer directions for future research. Here's more from the article. Although these studies did not explicitly explore the role of Christian nationalist beliefs, nor are conservative political beliefs synonymous with conservative political ideologies, the idea of effective polarization can help us conceptualize why stronger beliefs in Christian nationalism may negatively affect mental health. So they're saying they're not really looking at the specifics, but there seems to be a general trend that if you are a Christian nationalist or identify as such, you are more depressed or have more anxiety. Uh, continue on here. It is also important to recognize that Christian nationalism mythologizes a strictly ordered society in which rules are concrete and rule breakers should be severely punished. A growing body of work within the religion and health literature has suggested a dark side to certain religious beliefs that may be harmful for mental health. Although Christian nationalist beliefs may not hold a perfect correspondence with individual religious beliefs and practices, the fear of God's wrath and punishment for not bringing 
To fruition, the image of America desired by God may be a cognition that is linked with worse mental health. And at the bottom of the article, as American religious participation continues to decline, the appeal of Christian nationalism in the future to secular and religious audiences may increase, perhaps without the counterbalancing influence of personal religious participation. This hostile political milieu, complicated further by these religio-ethnic beliefs, suggests that the effect of Christian nationalism on mental health is unlikely to disappear in the short term. Scholars of religion, politics, and mental health should therefore continue to assess how Christian nationalism operates as a unique stressor in the broader universe of stressors, as well as to look for ways both inside and outside religious institutions to quell any deleterious mental health consequences that may accompany such beliefs. So the precedent is set in scientific literature that if you are a Christian nationalist, you tend to be more depressed or be more anxious. Now that we are entering this realm of technology and psychedelics, entering mainstream science, especially in the realm of mental health, you can see the Hegelian problem reaction solution in play here. There are already articles talking about virtual reality therapy for mental health. And over the course of many episodes, Basil and I have covered how VR is becoming an important tool in treating mental health. And in recent episodes of Canary Cry News Talk, we even speculated how John Fetterman, congressman, who went into Walter Reed Military Medical Center to get treated for depression earlier this year, may have gotten some kind of VR treatment because we found some documents outlining how Walter Reed Military Medical Center was getting all kinds of upgrades for VR and technology for treatment and for uh, you know HR and you know stuff like that. And when it comes to psychedelics, again, being used to treat mental health, it's become a thing. LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, hallucinogens, and mental health published back in 2021 on PubMed. This is the National Institute of Health website. We've seen policy align with this, legalizing all kinds of drugs in certain states. And so I think what's going to be pushed is some kind of religious experience as part of the mental health treatment. And between VR and hallucinogens being involved, it's going to be much easier to facilitate a religious or spiritual experience as part of your mental health treatment. And if you're talking about a hard nut to crack, you're talking about Christians who maybe happen to be Americans, who happen to be defenders of the Constitution. These people are suddenly going to be labeled sufferers of mental health. And they will be brought to various locations and be given these treatments, which will give them spiritual experiences, pharmakia at its finest. And as a conclusion, I wanted to bring up Revelation 13. Of course, it's the chapter that I always talk about. It talks about the two beasts. It talks about the image of the beast and the mark of the beast. And it's a very famous chapter. But one of the topics in this chapter is the conquering of saints. Verse 7, Then the beast was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life belonging to the Lamb who was slain. 
He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to die by the sword, by the sword he must be killed. Here is a call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. Those who are Christian nationalists are willing to die to defend the nation. But it says here that in the end times, it's not so much going to be a success where the church is able to figure out how to take down this worldly system from the political infrastructure and, hey, hey, we win, and then here comes Jesus. That's not how things are laid out, at least in biblical prophecy. It appears that there will be a time where this beast rises out of the sea and out of the earth, and part of their entire campaign is to wage war against the saints and even kill them. And perhaps those here that die by the sword must be killed by the sword are the Christian nationalists who are taking arms, acknowledging the clash, the physical clash, the violence of it all to defend what they believe is noble and right. But again, the eschatological outline is not that, hey, we do it in some kind of dominionist fashion. We take over culture and government and everything, and then Jesus can return. That's not how it goes. So that's where I have a problem with the way Christian nationalism is identified through those who are trying to propagate the idea of Christian nationalism in a positive sense. So in conclusion here, Christian nationalism clearly is a political ideology, mainly. Of course, it affects social and economic issues because it is mainly political, but it's certainly not a one-for-one biblical ideology. I personally don't have a problem with anybody who loves America or loves their country of origin, who also loves God and calls themselves a Christian. But I think it goes against 1 Peter 2.1 when you fuse it too much because it says, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh, which war against your soul. And just a couple of verses before, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Of course, we are foreigners. We are alien to this land. We are not native to this world. So to identify and become nationalist and really put your stake down into this fleshly, carnal world is, I think, the biggest mistake that Christian nationalists make. And while there are many things that I agree with, in fact, there are more things that I agree with when it comes to the ideas that are presented by those who say or defend Christian nationalism. For me personally, I can't really dive in and take up that label and walk around and make that the hill to die on because I can see that it's clearly part of a larger PSYOP, a situation that isn't going to end well, not just for people who identify as Christian nationalists, but I think all people who identify as Christians and identify themselves as being born again under the grace of God. So this is a very important topic that's very difficult to talk about because there are so many nuances and there's histories and there's narratives and even mythologies coming from both sides of the aisle, either for or against. 
but I hope you got something out of this episode. You're informed a little bit more to have a more intelligible conversation with others about the issue, not to identify as a Christian nationalist and not to denounce it as perhaps the progressives and the left wing folk might do, but to really find that narrow path. So I hope you got something a little bit different out of the conversation here than your normal podcast about Christian nationalism. And if you did, please consider supporting the show. Go to canarycry.support and you'll find many different ways you can support the show, either with your time, talent, or treasure. We appreciate all who already are on board with that. And if you want to know more about the podcast in general, go to canarycry.party. Yes, canarycry.party. That is the link tree link that gives you a page with all the links Things like the text message notification, meetups, uh, where you can watch, like on Rumble, uh, different ways to support all the different uh, extra projects that we got going on. Everything is there at canarycry.party. So do go check that out. And I think that's it. I know this was a little bit of a different kind of an episode, but I appreciate all of you for being here. If you're still here all the way till the end, you rock. Thank you very much. God bless. And until next time, remember to think outside the cage.